This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good morning, everybody, and uh, thanks, everybody, for dialing in. Uh, apologies for being a couple of minutes late. This is Trevor Garvin speaking here from uh, Ned Group Investments, Head of Multi-Manager, and welcome to NetGroup Investments Insights at 10 o'clock, where we continue to provide you with some interesting insights from a range of fund managers, both domestic managers, global managers. We have economic and political commentators, as well as business and thought leaders. So today, it's my pleasure to introduce JP Lundman, who will be chatting to to all of us in a couple of minutes time. I've known JP for sure well over 15, 16 years. We've been working together. We've had many a laugh and travel around the world. JP is a consultant to Nedbank Private Wealth and also an independent political commentator. He focuses on commenting on political trends, economics with a specific emphasis on emerging economies, demographics, and the social capital of various countries. And of course, he's got a particular interest in South Africa specifically as a country. I also know JP in his love his wife and family, and he's always open and up to a, a good debate over any topic as long as there's a really good bottle of red wine that's available and uh, we can enjoy. So JP, the the sort of agenda for today is I'm going to hand over to you. JP has got a couple of slides to speak to. He will be talking for about half an hour and then I may have a couple of questions for you, JP, at the end and then we'll obviously call it a day. So JP, without any further ado, I'll hand over to you. Look forward to what you've got to tell us and yeah, giving you about 30 minutes or so. So you may go ahead. Thank you very much, Trevor. Good morning, everybody. Uh, very nice to be with you and, uh, and, and thank, you for, uh, thank you for joining us. I must say, uh, Trevor, referring to wine this early in the morning is really making me thirsty. <laughs> Well, it is Friday, so at least there is there is hope on the on the horizon. So, uh, as Trevor said, I just want to share a few slides with you, and they should be on your screen now. Slide number one has got a title: uh, "The Six-Year Demographic Recession." And let me just explain why I call it a demographic recession. For me, the um, the critical thing about economic growth is not the growth on its own. It is growth in comparison to population growth. And, and those who know my work will know that I've taken this, this view for a long time. So it's, it's about economic growth minus population growth. Economic growth is about, is, about making, is about making cash flow, making money, but you're making money or the quantum of money that you make is influenced by how many babies you're making. So what you see on the screen is a timeline of more or less uh, 40, 45 years from 1975 all the way to 2020. And what those blue bars tell us or show us is the years, the 12 months periods in which we got richer. In other words, where economic growth was higher than population growth. 
and the, the bars going down to the bottom are the bars where we got poorer. Uh, economic growth was less than population growth. And as you can see clearly uh, on this slide, there was a long period, about two decades, from the middle 70s to the middle 90s, where we, uh, where we got poorer. And we got poorer by a margin of about 11%, which is quite a substantial number. I say quite substantial because this is an after-inflation number. Inflation has been ripped out of these figures. Uh, and then you can see from, from the middle 90s to about 2014, we've had quite a nice recovery. And the country got richer by, by 33%. Uh, there were some setbacks in that period. Uh, you can see in 1998, the, the blue bar is going downwards. And you can see uh, in 2008, the blue bar also goes downwards. Those were the two years where, where we had uh, international crises and, and South Africa was affected by those crises as well. But there's no denying that in general, the period from the mid 90s to 2014, a period of about 20 years, 21 years, we, uh, we got substantially wealthier. And, you know, as I always say to South Africans, where do you think Umschlanga comes from? Uh, three decades ago or so, those were just cane fields. Uh, where do you think Santon comes from? Where do you think the property prices in the Western Cape comes from? Uh, I was talking to a farmer yesterday who bought a farm 20 years ago for 8 million rand, and that farm was now valued at 125 million by the bank. Yeah, he's done a lot of improvements and capital works and so on. But that's the kind of thing that happens when you've got a 33% rise, a 33% increase in per capita incomes. What you can also see on the screen is that starting in 2015, for the five years to 2019, I, I know it sounds like four, but, but count them in your fingers, from 2015 to 2019, five years, our per capita income, uh, our economy stagnated and per capita incomes declined by, by about 3%. So we got poorer again. So that long run that we had after the democracy have certainly been uh, interrupted and turned, turned around. Uh, not turned around in a train smash way, but certainly turned around. Where the train smash is uh, destined to come in will be in 2020. We don't know at this stage yet, the year is not over, but uh, the expectation is that by the end of this year, per capita incomes will probably be about 11% lower than what they were in December last year. So we're taking a huge whack, make no mistake. Even at minus 3%, you're taking a whack. For some people, it's immaterial number, the income has gone up, they're living better. Other people have lost their jobs, they've been retrenched, their businesses have been closed down. People who've managed to hang on to their jobs and hang on to their businesses have not seen an increase in income. So the minus 3% is not just a number, it illustrates the real life outside there on the streets. And, and therefore the minus 11, which is the anticipated figure for, uh, for 2020, is, is really quite a serious whack. Let me just explain how we get to that minus 11. The assumption is that the economy will shrink, will contract by 9.5%. And then our population growth is about one and a half. So you add that on and you end up with a minus 11 figure. This is the most serious number since 1921. It is even more serious than the 1929 depression. The depression is well known of 1929 and people refer to it and so on. At that point, the decline was about minus 8%. But in fact, a few years earlier in 1921, 
we had a bigger decline. We had a decline of about 14, 15%. And that was because there was a very serious drought in South Africa in 1921, and, and that uh, contracted the economy and pushed uh, incomes down. So this is the worst. This, this minus 11 for 2020 is the worst since 1921. We can talk about the worst in 100 years. So that is where we are at the moment. We, we were in trouble, economically speaking, for five years before the COVID epidemic struck us. Now the COVID epidemic has struck us, a pandemic, and now we're sitting with probably a minus 11% number for this year. It's a, it's a forecast, but I think it's a reasonable one. Uh, it comes from the Bureau of Economic Research at Stellenbosch. So the first point, what is the impact of the COVID what is the impact of the COVID pandemic? The first one is it aggravates by a wide margin the troubles that we had uh, in any case before the pandemic struck. So on, on slide number two, uh, what I've just spoken about there, the first bullet, there was, there's going to be a 9 to 10% contraction. I give you the reference to 29 and 24, 21. So that's the first fact or first consequence of, of COVID-19. The second consequence is, I think there's little doubt that COVID is going to cause a huge debt crisis. When do you have a debt crisis? You have it when income is not enough to service debt. And that applies to a government, to a company, a business, and to individuals and individual households. When your income is no longer enough to service your debt commitments, to pay the interest and to repay uh, capital, then, then you've got to get a debt crisis, and we, the world will still have to work through this. The third consequence is that I think the COVID crisis has strengthened the position of uh, President Ramaphosa considerably. Uh, Nedbank Private Wealth uh, distributed a note on that in April, uh, in May rather, in May, and they we quote various poll numbers and so on. There's no question that if the president was before this pandemic started, 60-40 uh, in charge of his party, then I think it's safe to say he's now probably 70-75% in charge of his party. He's very far away from that 48% with 48-52 margin with which he was elected two and a half years ago at NASRAC. I know in the course of April and May, a lot of fake news uh, has gone around saying that he will be kicked out or he has even been kicked out by the ANC he will be replaced by NDZ, uh, he will be recalled, and so on. Uh, frankly, uh, uh, Trevor, that is all rubbish. Uh, none of that is true, and on the contrary, I think the, the, uh, the COVID pandemic has helped him. The, uh, the fourth consequence that I see from COVID is that there's a cohesion and an urgency around economic growth. And you would have seen it in the last few days, empirical evidence of that, when the ANC released a 34-slide document on which they talk about economic reconstruction and how they want to do it. But it's not just that. You can listen to the Minister of Finance. You can uh, follow what the President himself says. I think there's a very real realization now that we're in deep trouble and we need to do something about uh, the economy and do that urgently. Now, that's a plus in a, in a political sense. The, the last point I want to make about uh, the consequences of COVID is, is the fact that we mustn't forget that at the end of March, we were finally downgraded by Moody's, and at the end of April, we were finally uh, kicked out of the world global bond index. 
And everybody predicted uh, the end of life as we know it uh, when, that occur when that occurrence happens. Well, it has happened. It is not the end of life. We've not gone to the IMF as many people as predicted and others have hoped. Some others have feared. What is coming out clearly, and that's a lesson from the COVID pandemic, is we survived not just COVID, but we also survived the downgrade at the same time. I think that's quite a compliment. That's quite a compliment for the for the stability and the strength and the how deep the South African financial markets are. Uh, and the fact that we could weather it, uh, yeah, uh, is, is, is something to bear in mind. Uh, our long rates now are virtually back where they were before the downgrade, in spite of COVID. The currency is still weaker, uh, and that's one of the things that one would expect in conditions like this. And it is, in a sense, a minor price to pay for uh, for what uh, for the changes that that, that has occurred. So that is uh, where we are, and that is. I was asked to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the the safe consequences. Let's go a step further now to slide three and just look at um, how are we going to go get out of this low growth uh, scenario in which we are. Now, there are a number of uh, uh, bullets on the screen. Let me just uh, talk them to them one by one. I think the first point to make is that fiscal and monetary stimulation at the moment is not, is not really possible unless you are willing to print money. Now, both the government and the Reserve Bank, both the politicians as well as the, the technocrats, have made it clear that we're not going to print money. There are, there are people who believe that it should be done. Julius Malema is one. You're welcome to follow his uh, economic advice if you want to. The chances of, of uh, printing money to get out of where we are is, is, not, is really not very high. The second, the second point that is important is we need to maintain, it's really linked to number one, we need to maintain a stable and a predictable macroeconomic policy. So your fiscal policy and your monetary policy must be, you must know where you're going and people must, be, must know what they can expect. Now, uh, the governor has made very clear where he stands and we know where we stand with the, uh, with the Reserve Bank and with interest rates. We're getting a new budget on 24 June, another two weeks or three weeks to go. And that budget will tell us, will give us detail of where we stand on the fiscal policy post-COVID. Obviously, the budget that we got in February is no longer relevant. It's, it's really no longer relevant. So it's about, uh, it's about where we're going now that we're in the middle of the epidemic. So uh, you cannot print money. That's, that's not open to us. Uh, you have to maintain a stable macroeconomic policy framework. And the evidence that we've done that is in the 500 billion rand COVID relief, which the president announced. Of that 500 billion, only 90, around about 90, 95 billion rand extra has to be borrowed. It's actually quite a clever package if you can do relief for 500 billion at the cost of only borrowing 90 billion more. And we will, got to, we will get that 90 uh, in all likelihood from the four financial institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, the uh, BRICS Bank, uh, and the African Development Bank. And I think the BRICS Bank one is the furthest advance. They talk about $1.5 billion, and the IMF uh, has already said that South Africa can access $4.2 And this, these fundings or money, these monies uh, is to be used for fighting COVID. Now, the third bullet, I think, is really the key point. 
if we want to get out of the low growth in which we're stuck, then we have to do a lot of structural reform in the economy. Now, structural reform is one of those things. It means different things to different people. For some people, it means that you have to privatize everything. For other people, it means that you have to abolish labor laws in the labor market and just allow the labor market to run without any regulation. For a third group of people, it would mean we've got to print money. That's more to the left of the political spectrum. There you have a group of people who say structural reform is to abandon the inflation target, print money, and finance the budget deficit uh, through the Reserve Bank. A fourth group of people uh, would say uh, it's all about uh, exports. So create special economic zones, and then you can follow China and Vietnam and Singapore and export, and that's the way you, you get richer. There are about 25 different schools uh, on what structural reform means for different schools and different groups of people. For me, it's very simple. A structural reform, and this is how it is treated in the literature as well, is any action that increases or it improves productivity. It's as simple as that. Uh, if you can increase productivity, then do so. Follow whatever actions will bring you that result. And in South Africa, we need, we need, a, we need a proper injection of productivity increases. Now, what I've done then, just for your reference, I've, I've summarized the treasury, the treasury paper on structural reform because that's, that's where Treasury's thinking is. And what Treasury has done is to identify uh, five key growth reform areas. And there they are, you can see them, I'm not going to read through them. Uh, that, is, that is what they've identified as the areas in our national life, in our economy, where we have to do reforms to increase productivity. I want to focus uh, on the first one only, and then in fact only on half of the first one. Uh, modernizing network industries. This is now both in government and in and in ANC. This is a big theme that we can't carry on with with electricity with our network industries, which uh, in the way that we have been uh, carrying on, we have to change that. And that then includes transport, water, energy, and spectrum release or telecommunications. I'm going to talk only about energy and electricity this morning and briefly about spectrum. Why? because I think that's where things are the furthest advanced. The others uh, take, for example, the one item there, prioritizing growth in labor-intensive sectors like agriculture and tourism. Well, tourism is dead. And those of you involved in agriculture will know that agriculture is moving more and more capital-intensive. So to talk about uh, labor intensity, I think it's, it's, uh, you'll have to wait long before you get results. So I want to focus on energy because I think things have progressed very far there. It's quite clear that the ANC and government and unions are aligned, which is important, which is an important political backdrop, and then and then uh, spectrum release. So uh, on slide number four, on slide number four, heading energy, you really only have to go back to two documents, the one was about 60 pages, the other one about 66 pages, I think, if I remember correctly, that were published in October 2019. So that's about, uh, what, nine months ago. And these, those two documents dealt with, the, with South Africa's integrated resource plan, how we see energy developing over the next 10 to 30 years, and the second document dealt with ESCOM. 
And here is the, the key summary. In terms of the um, IRP, it stipulates that over the 12, uh, the 11 years uh, from from 2019 to 2030, 30,000 megawatt of electricity, new capacity, new electricity capacity must be installed. And then this, on this line there, you can see that 48% of that new capacity is envisaged. It will come from wind, 20% from solar. Gas will make a contribution of 10%, hydro 8% storage. That's based basically a battery, battery technology, uh, and hydro storage will do seven, <coughs> excuse me. And coal uh, is the smallest contribution, 5%. Now, if you just, uh, and why do we have to create this 11,000 megawatts of new capacity? Well, we have to create it because 11,000 megawatts of current coal fired power stations of current ESCOM power stations will have to be decommissioned. First, they're old and they cannot be run efficiently anymore. Two, they are huge contributors to carbon emissions and South Africa has commitments under the Paris Agreement to reduce our carbon emissions. And, and three, the maintenance of those things is A, difficult and B, expensive. So there's, there's, there's general agreement, and Andre de Reiter has confirmed this, the, the ESCOM CEO, that this 11,000 megawatts will be decommissioned over the next few years. What do you replace it with? Well, you replace it with wind, solar, gas, and the other items that I've shown there for you. So there's a massive change coming uh, in our energy uh, industry. We're going from a situation where 95% of our electricity is provided by ESCOM to a situation where less than 60% will be provided by ESCOM. And with that, we're going from a situation where 95% of our energy is provided, uh, is derived from coal to where it will be derived from renewable sources. Not all of them will be renewable. Gas, for example, is not renewable. You can see there's a provision that they must bring in 10%, but gas is certainly a hell of a lot cleaner than coal. So in that sense, it is, Progress. I personally think if you if you look at the society around us, what we're going to see in 10 years time, 15 years time is that the gas industry is going to be much, much bigger than what it is today. Uh, just as a throwaway comment, that 5% for coal that you see there, that is in the IRP, the Integrated Resource Plan. That is what they envision. And it's largely built around two power stations in uh, the Waterberg area. Tambetsi, and I can't remember the other one's name. I doubt those power stations will be built. I very much doubt it. Why do I doubt it? First of all, uh, financial constraints. More and more banks are refusing to give money for coal-fired power stations, also in South Africa. So even if you're an, are an entrepreneur, you may find that you will not be able to get the money. The second reason is environmental concerns. Uh, those, those projects will be opposed in the courts. They will be opposed in, in public opinion. They will be opposed in protests from green activists. So unless there's a breakthrough in coal technology, some kind of scientific breakthrough that gives you much cleaner coal, I doubt whether that 5% will even occur. I think that 5% will be spread over the other items, over wind, solar, and, and, and hydro. Okay, you can you can see there on the bullet, I've really already uh, pointed to it, that uh, when we reach this phase of the IRP by 2030, 
coal will be less than 60%, renewables will constitute 25% of our energy needs, hydro 8, nuclear 4.5. Where does nuclear come in? Nuclear comes in uh, if the hydro project does not take place. So the hydro project refers to the Great Inga scheme in Central Africa. South Africa has uh, uh, signed the takeoff agreement, but it is subject to certain constraints and conditions. Uh, most of those conditions must be met by 2022, which is next year. And if by next year it is clear that they will not be met, then I doubt then South Africa has got the right to step out of those contracts, step out of those agreements. And the department has indicated in that case, if we lose the hydro, they will go for nuclear. And you can see there, there's a provision for four and a half percent. Of course, some of that nuclear will come from Kuberg in the Western Cape, but there's also new facilities, new capacity that, that will be erected. And recently, about a month ago, the department has put out a request for information. And its basic stance is if there are private sector players who want to come in and build nuclear power stations, then that's fine. Uh, you know, it's for their account. But of course, it will have to meet the test of, of costs. So that's really a summary in one slide of what is in store for both ESCOM and the energy sector in South Africa in general. So let's go to, let's go to slide five and answer the question, what does this mean in money terms? I mean, we're talking economic growth here. So how will this electricity story, how will it influence growth? Now, uh, you've already seen, I'm repeating the first point, uh, 30,000 megawatts must be installed. Uh, that is in terms of the IRP. But the IRP assumes an EAF. What is EAF? Uh, what animal is that? That is basically energy availability factor. That's ESCOM's efficiency. The IRP assumes uh, an EAF of 75%. But it is running and has run now for the best part of the year at below 68%. Currently, it's running at about 67%. Now, if you make a budget, in this case, an energy budget, and you assume that something will run at 75%, but it actually runs at about 8 percentage points lower, then, then clearly your sums can't add up. And therefore, I'm saying... ESCOM will probably never get back to 75%. If the plant is old, the uh, neglect that we've had in maintenance substantial, I doubt that we will ever get back to 75%. I think if, we, if it gets back to 70%, that will probably be a lot. Now, that means more than 30,000 megawatts will have to be installed. 30,000 megawatts is the baseline. That's what we take now as the base case, and that's in the IRP. But I suspect in real life it will be closer to 32 or 33,000. Doesn't matter, just park that at the back of your mind. How much is 30,000 megawatts? The 6,000 megawatts of renewable energy that we have had so far in South Africa has brought in investment of 220 billion rand, of which 42% came from foreigners. You want to talk foreign direct investment? there is your sector and clearly there is huge interest. If almost half of that money came from outside our borders, half of the 220 billion, it shows there is huge appetite. It's also, this appetite was confirmed in February this year when the department uh, opened up requests for interest. 
which they've received from private sector people for 2,000 megawatts, there were 481 uh, organizations and companies uh, interested. Now, let's apply the normal 80-20 rule. Let's say 80% is chancers and bullshitters and people that you, uh, that you can't trust, and only 20% is genuine and real. 20% is still 90 companies, 90 organizations. So there's clearly huge interest in South Africa and outside South Africa in, in energy investment. Okay, so if 6,000 megawatts resulted in 220 billion rand investment, in how much investment will 30,000 megawatts result? Now, my back of a, a cigarette box calculation is at least 1 trillion rand, at least 1 trillion rand. And I haven't encountered any serious opposition from people uh, who know much more than I do when I floated this amount around. People accept that if we want to build 30,000 megawatts over the next 10 years, uh, we, will have to, we will have to invest about a trillion rand. Now that obviously can't come from government. It obviously can't come from ESCOM. It will have to come from private investors. And if you then extend your cigarette box investment and you, your cigarette box calculation rather, and you say, um, uh, we want to do this investment over 10 years, let's divide a trillion by 10, then you end up with 100 billion a year. Now, how much is 100 billion a year? Well, there you have it in a bullet. South Africa's net investment uh, in the last two years uh, was about 200 billion a year. If you feel that that's too low, that we should look at the earlier period, there you've got the numbers for the seven years before the last two years, it was about 211 billion. It doesn't matter which way you cut it, 100 billion on 200, 210 billion is a massive percentage. You're looking at almost 50%. So that's the, that's the increase that South Africa can get in its net investment. And I just want to explain something here. When economists talk about investment, it is a standard procedure to talk about gross investment, gross investment as a percentage of GDP. Derek Keyes taught me that uh, one mustn't mess around with gross investment, you must deduct depreciation. So take your gross investment, deduct depreciation, and you end up with net investment, and that's the really critical number. And I like that, it's, it's conservative, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's nothing flashy about it. Net investment, I think, is the thing to look at. And there you can see the enormous impact that it has. So if you ask me how do we get out of this low growth scenario in which we are, then I say you restructure ESCOM and you restructure more importantly the energy industry. How are you going to do that? Well, that is according to the IRP, which by the way is being implemented step by step, and I'm happy to take happy to take questions about that. So in conclusion, Trevor, if we can go to the last slide, slide six, what is the so what? Uh, that I want to bring across that we have the worst economic slump in 100 years, we, even worse than 20, 1929. COVID-19, I think, is doing us a favor. It is forcing the economy onto the agenda and it's forcing the item of structural adjustment. The easiest wins, the lowest hanging fruit, the lowest hanging fruit in structural adjustment is, is electricity. There's also spectrum release that I have not referred to. And, and again, I can, we can talk about that, but that train is clearly uh, steaming on and a company like Vodacom has recently expressed their happiness with, with the, the schedule the government has, the target dates will be met, and, and they're looking forward to, to making investments. The nice thing about electricity and also spectrum is there's no problem with demand. Uh, 
If you run a hotel or you run a bed and breakfast or you run a B&B, your problem at the moment is you don't have demand for your product. There are no tourists or very few. So there's no demand for your product. Uh, if you're a hospital and you can't do elective surgery, well, then there's no demand for your product. Uh, that is not the case of electricity. People want electricity. They want spectrum. Uh, you must just supply it to them. They will happily take it and happily pay for it. So I think that's where the economy is going to get a kickstart. Uh, it will be on the back of investment. It will not, not be on the back of easy money. It will be on the back of, of real investment. And uh, it holds the potential to take the South African economy back to a 2-3% growth rate. And the importance of a 2-3% growth rate, it is much more than population growth. Our population growth is about 1.5%, 1.6%. So if you can grow your economy at 3, that's almost double the population growth. Well, then you can terminate, you can end the six-year demographic recession that we've had, and we can look at a, at a whole new ballgame. Trevor, that is, uh, that is what, I, uh, what I have to offer. Thank you. JP, thanks so much for that. Uh, very interesting insights there. I've just got two quick questions for you, which if we can keep the answers relatively short. And I mean, you've touched on them in a, you know, on a more economic front, perhaps, but I think I'm sort of focusing maybe on the bit more on the political side. So, I mean, Cyril Ramaphosa, you know, he's in one of his recent sort of speeches, he spoke about this urgent economic structural reform that the country needs to do, which you touched on, which where the pressure was really coming from the rating agencies and Moody mentioned it in the downgrade that that's what they're looking for. Yeah. And then he also threw in though the lovely radical economic transformation, which is against coming more from the left and the EFF, etc. Can you just sort of comment a little bit why did he, you know, why does he sort of throw perhaps two like opposing economic ideas together? And and on these points that you've spoke about earlier, which are the actual actions he needs to potentially be doing, specifically the timing, because if if anything, I, it might be me personally, I, I feel like Ramaphosa and the government often says the right thing but then they take ages to action it if it ever happens. So can you just comment a bit about those two opposing comments and then how quickly you actually think they're going to implement these structural reforms? How quickly are these decisions going to be made and implemented, etc.? Certainly, Trevor. As far as the two opposing statements are concerned, let's uh, look in, in, in detail at what the president said and the one you've covered. That's structural reform. We don't have to we don't have to waste time there. On radical economic transformation, the other one, what he referred to specifically, and what the ANC is referring to in their 30-page, 34-slide document, is a radical change in the social conditions of black people in South Africa. I think it's trite to say that if you look at housing, you look at water, you look at sanitation, you look at a range of, of basic social services that black South Africans, in spite of all the progress since 1994, are still in the worse position than, than for example, their white compatriots. 
Now that is of course changing, those dividing lines are blurring, people are moving up and others down and so on. But I think broadly, most of Africans, uh, if they're not agitated, will agree with that, with that statement. And what the president has made clear and his ministers has made clear is they want to see a change in that. Uh, the second point is they want to see a bigger inclusion of more people, more, particularly more black people in the economy. Now, what does more inclusion mean? It means more jobs, more livelihoods, more ownership, all the things that, that you and I uh, enjoy and practice. Uh, and, and in fact, the president has, has, has spelled that out in, 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 a, in a fair amount of detail. So I don't think if he talks about radical change, he is not meaning what the Jacob Zuma, Ace Mahashula squad meant. What he's talking about is making the, and he said in, so in so many words, making the economy bigger, creating more opportunities for everybody, enabling more, particularly black people, to enter the economy. In that sense, I don't think there's a contrast between what he stands for or a contrast between those two ideas that you mentioned. Uh, I think he understands very well that you will get to number two by doing number one. That's how I interpret the two yeah. uh, points, Trevor. Are you happy with and, that? And JP, and then on the second part, which is just how quickly do you see them making these announcements and implementing these sort of these points that you had in some of your slides earlier? Look, the, uh, the ESCOM story is already very far advanced. I know that the business day this week had a headline to say it's been delayed. I think that was just a irresponsible headline, if not uninformed. Uh, just consider this. The president announced in February 2019 that ESCOM will be split up. Now, that's 18 months ago. February 2019, it's now June 2020, 17 months ago. The president said that's what they're going to do. At the time, what was the reaction? There were two reactions. The one said, this is not important. What does it matter? It's not going to end load shedding. Well, the people who were a little bit better informed said, this is massively important. It's a big deal, but it won't happen. The unions and other vested interests will oppose it. That was 17 months ago. Then we had an election. We came through the election. We are now basically 12 months after the election. And where are we now? Well, ESCOM has been divided into three by Andre de Reiter. He's confirmed that we now have three boards, different boards running the three companies, and they're busy with a process of divisionalization. That's internally in ESCOM. If you look externally, you would have noticed that all the criticism of this move have evaporated. Where's Kusatu, that 17 months ago said, never in our lives. Now they're saying we have to be realistic. The only one that's still making noise is NUMSA. NUMSA is outside the Kusato ANC alliance, and I don't think you have to worry too much about them. So the political, uh, the political midpoint on the restructuring of ESCOM has moved enormously in 17 months. I would expect this thing to be completed in the next two to three years. 2023 is probably when we will see the full implementation of this. Now, you can say that takes too long, Consider two private sector companies, Omutual and Investec. Do you know that from the time that Investec the first time started talking about splitting up until they did, actually did it was 12 years? And you can track for yourself the, how long it took for Omutual to reorganize itself and split up. It was a process that took a few years and a dedicated, a dedicated managing director. 
So uh, ESCOM is an infinitely more complex organization than either Investec or uh, Old Mutual, I would venture to say. Uh, it's certainly much bigger. And therefore, for them to complete their reorganization in the same time as Mutual and perhaps even a, big, a little bit faster than Investec, I think is, is, uh, says a hell of a lot. So I'm, I'm relaxed about the timelines, I'm relaxed about the political support, and I think oh, continuously we will see changes taking place. By the end of the, this year, the bid window five for the renewables will be opened. On that, I'm happy to bet the case of uh, a good South African red wine. Uh, and the process will continue. And over the next three years or so, you will not recognize what has happened to either electricity or uh, energy. On spectrum release, the deadline is November, November 1920. The feedback that we get from people like Vodacom, uh, who's a big player in that industry, is that they're very happy with the timelines, they're very happy with the speed at which the timelines are being realized, and they're looking forward to, to November 2020. So I think to answer your question, Trevor, uh, we are sometimes a little bit uh, impatient. We're also sometimes a little bit uninformed in what is involved, that we underestimate the task. I'm happy that on both energy and spectrum, the train has left the station, stations and the two trains are steaming ahead. Great, JP, thank you. Just, uh, I've got two more questions. My first question just is on unemployment. So, I mean, pre-COVID, we were sitting, depending on which official, unofficial measures, I think, you know, I think probably around about somewhere between 25 to 30 percent unemployment. And in the 25-year and younger age group, possibly even higher. With COVID now, businesses taking strain, many having had to sh shut down, unemployment's probably even increased. And I mean, this is a real, real problem. The, these economic sort of rollout plans that you've mentioned, ESCOM and the other ones in your previous slides, what sort of inroads do you think that they will make in terms of improving the unemployment situation? And how can government really make a material inroads into getting unemployment down? Look, there's, there's, there's only one way. You've got to have faster economic growth. There's no other magic bullet. If there was a magic bullet, then there would have been no unemployment in the world. And the Chinese have taught us, uh, most of Southeast Asia has taught us, that if you want to resolve unemployment, you've got to grow. Now, this is this this sentiment, this priority of economic growth above all else, is is a bit foreign to democratic South Africa. We've always had a certain ambivalence about growth. I call it yes, but. There's always the recognition, yes, growth is important, but it must be green. The growth must be rural. The growth must uh, satisfy or involve women and children. And by the time that you've added up all the buts, there's no yes. You, you get my argument. We've had a yes, but attitude. One of the things that President Ramaphosa has done, and he did it after the election in his first State of the Nation speech, and he did it again when he was in KZN a few weeks ago. He said it is economic growth above all else. And that, I think, is a, is a common sense, sensible attitude 
which, as I say, has never been so clearly articulated in democratic South Africa. We've always had this ambivalence about growth. COVID has driven the ambivalence away. So your only lever that you can pull is to have growth, and to have growth, you must do the things that we discussed. And I think that's where the political, <clears throat> that's where the, politi the body politic is moving. And I tried to say that on, on, on slide two under consequences. There's no other fix, Trevor, for unemployment. You can, in due course, I think we will have to move to things like a basic income grant, something which the DA has proposed more than 10 years ago already. Up till now, it hasn't been done because uh, it hasn't been possible money-wise. But as you grow the economy and you collect more taxes and so on, it becomes possible to do it. So you must create as many jobs as you can. You must create opportunities for people to earn their own livelihoods. You must uh, help those who can't get jobs at all with a certain minimum income. And again, for that, you need the economy. For that, you need growth. There is really no other substitute. Focus on growth and the rest will follow. If there's one piece of absolute rubbish jargon, it is this phrase, uh, jobless growth. And I know people on both the left and the right like to use it for their political arguments. There's no empirical evidence for that. Uh, when the economy grows, that's the international experience through history. When the economy grows, jobs follow. When you have jobs, uh, off you go. That's the only way you can deal with this. Yep, agreed. JP, so just final question or would like to get your comments. I think it would be a miss of me not to ask you. Um, of course, we've seen in America just in the last week the terrible killing of George Floyd and the subsequent riots, etc., as well as now this strong movement on trying to rid, I guess, within the states this racism that's potentially in society there. I would just be interested, yeah, in your comments of what you think of what's going on currently in America and if there are any parallels to South Africa, past or, or current. Look, I don't think they're parallel to South Africa. The big difference is that here in this country, people, particularly black people, have got a very uh, direct and decisive say in public affairs and in politics. Uh, I think the evidence is quite clear in America, they suffer much more exclusion. Well, there, is a, there is a similarity in that we also have in South Africa police brutality, but I honestly don't think we have it on the scale that they have it in the States. I haven't studied the topic, but that, that would just be my, my feeling. We, we do have police brutality, but not uh, certainly not as much as there. Look, I think it all uh, will play into the election. It can enhance Mr. Trump's uh, uh, chances of re-election. Some people say it could, it could, of course, damage his chances. I really don't know. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But I think the, the lesson for us would be we must deal with the fact that a huge part of our population is excluded from society. That is really what the American lesson for me would be for South Africa. Deal with exclusion. And that brings us to the radical change that the president referred to. Uh, that brings us to the fact that we have to exclude uh, many, many more of our compatriots in the economic uh, life of the country. They are included in the political life, they are included in the social life, but we need much more inclusion in the economy. Uh, inequality and exclusion in America has gone too far. Uh, and we, we mustn't repeat that mistake.
Great, JP. Thank you very much. I think that draws us to an end. I'd like to thank you so much for your time and for, for dialing in and your interesting comments as always, thought provoking. And uh, let's hope the government follows a number of the points that you've highlighted here. So thanks very much for your time. I'd like to thank everybody else for dialing in and just to remind the people that are dialed in that next week we are continuing with Net Group Investments Insights at 10 a.m. At this point in time, we have two items on Wednesday and on Friday next week. On Wednesday next week, we have several fund managers presenting over a extended period, over about an hour and a half on various asset classes, as well as the founder of Ladles of Love, which is an organization in the Western Cape that has been feeding the hungry and poverty-stricken areas, and it's quite an amazing story. And then on Friday, we have David McWilliams dialing in from Ireland. Many of you will have listened to him before. He's also a, an economic, political commentator, futurist, and he will be speaking about trends globally and how he sees the world post-COVID as well. So please just dial in for those and otherwise wishing everybody a happy, relaxing and uh, healthy weekend. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.